tune into both Caught Offside and our FC podcast as they preview the Euros, as well as the United States trying to qualify for the World Cup. That's Caught Offside and our FC podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're looking to watch world-class soccer, ESPN Plus is where to find it. The best teams, the biggest stars, and over 20 international leagues and tournaments. La Liga, Bundesliga, MLS, FA Cup, Copa del Rey, and more. Sign up now at ESPNplus.com. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. Hey, friends. Happy Tuesday. A slightly different pod format this week. Not a lot of the bells and whistles because I really want to make full use of my time talking to Jen Sturger. It was a conversation that was, uh, that was honestly a long time coming. And when now-fired Mets GM Jared Porter was accused and ultimately admitted to harassing a female reporter earlier this year, Jen was thrust back into the spotlight for having experienced the same thing years ago, and I wanted to talk to her about it. Uh, heads up to uh, this week's edition of What Does Pride Mean to You? Our recurring feature this month for Pride Month features the incredible Christina Carl. So stick around for that at the end of the podcast. OK, um, some background on why my conversation with Jen was a long time coming and honestly, truly cathartic for me. So uh, Jen and I met very briefly at a party through a mutual friend years ago, and I knew her as the sort of famous cowgirl fan from FSU that was all over sports blogs. And I remembered her when she popped back into the national conversation years later as the victim of alleged harassment by superstar quarterback Brett Favre. So when I first joined ESPNW, we used to publish these regular written roundtable discussions with a handful of writers taking on a hot-button issue in sports. And in 2011, the results of the NFL investigation into Favre was the topic. Here's what I wrote then about the NFL's decision to fine Favre $50,000 for quote-unquote failure to cooperate with a league investigation. Quote, the bottom line is this. If Brett Favre truly harassed Jen Sturger and his advances were unwanted and unreciprocated, then a measly $50,000 fine doesn't cut it. Only Favre and Sturger know what really happened, but I'd bet the situation wasn't nearly as one-sided as she purports it to be. I just don't see how Favre could ask her out, get denied, and decide the next logical step would be to text her the contents of his Wranglers. There's a disconnect there, and I'd imagine some gaps in the findings resulted in the ruling of insufficient evidence. Whatever the league decided, fine, suspension, no discipline whatsoever, it should have acted on it a long time ago, waiting until the Vikings' last game of the year, when Favre's retirement presser has all but been scheduled, reveals an unfair and inappropriate bias to number four and sets a dangerous precedent for future cases. So knowing what I know now about harassment and assault, I cringe when I read that. If I were writing about the Favre incident today, I wouldn't be so naive about the league or its players. And as an industry, we just weren't having the kind of nuanced discussions about sexual harassment, domestic violence, and assault that we've started having in recent years. And now, after covering too many of these cases, I see that Sturger's case was textbook. A victim got the courage to speak up and was doubted and shamed for doing so, while the famous athlete got the undeserved benefit of the doubt. I'm trying to get that roundtable off of our website. We were all green, newly hired writers who weren't actually reporting on the story, didn't have the facts, and didn't know how to treat it with care. And the words of a few of us in that roundtable re-victimized Jen at a time when she needed the support of her industry. And I especially know now that my words weren't correct. 
it is possible for someone to ignore or reject someone's advances and for them to keep on coming, which is exactly what we saw with the Mets GM, Jared Porter. 80-something messages unreciprocated before sending lewd photos. And it hurts to go back and revisit that I didn't understand that at the time, because despite believing myself to be an advocate for women all of my life, I had grown up to believe what was essentially a camouflaged version of the most disgusting narrative of them all. She was asking for it. Look at how she's dressed. There's no way she's innocent in this. Because despite my own experiences with harassment, I didn't really empathize with Jen or think of her as the same as me, an up-and-coming sports reporter who really wanted people to respect me. I saw her Playboy photos and I judged her. Just like the countless blogs and magazines I had read growing up influenced me to do. I was the product of a lifetime of watching society chastise sexually empowered women, of blaming women for their own victimization, of painting those who spoke out against powerful men as crazy or jealous or bitter or money hungry. And that's not an excuse. That's simply an acknowledgement that I was swayed by the influences around me and I wasn't strong enough or informed enough to push back on them until now. And I wish for Sturger's sake that the sports industry had been as evolved then as it is now because she would have gotten the support that she deserved. And I wish that I personally hadn't been so naive about the way society primes us to blame victims and the way companies and leagues and teams work overtime to protect their stars, even to the point of ignoring or enabling criminal behavior. So I wanted to apologize to Jen for my words back then, and I wanted to give her a chance to tell the full story of what happened, which really got lost in the mess of tabloids and salacious blog posts that, that dominated the coverage of it back then. And finally getting the chance to connect with her and really talk about it felt cathartic, because as Jen mentions in the pod, when she read my commentary, she was especially hurt because we had met years before and she had hoped that I would support her, even if the majority of sports media was refusing to back her up. And years after the ESPNW piece went up, Jen posted on Twitter reminding me of my commentary, and I honestly burned with shame reading it. I apologized to her, but I was pretty defensive. You know, I have learned a lot since then, and it hurt when others jumped into the conversation, particularly representatives of a super toxic misogynist website who didn't actually care about the issues or care about Jen. They just wanted to attack me and they called me a hypocrite and accused me of being a fake ally for women because of something I'd written when I just started out. And it was painful, but it was also super powerful. And you don't have to be a writer and be published anywhere to have your opinion saved and brought back later. Now everyone is growing up on social media and it's important for us all to understand that you can take accountability for the things you've said, you can learn and grow and evolve, you can prove you're different and more educated and informed now, and hopefully be better every day. And it's uncomfortable to go through that, um, especially publicly. And it's uncomfortable to have people who don't actually care use those words of mine to try to counteract all the work I've done since. But it keeps me honest, and it's a constant reminder to be the person that I want to be and claim to be. The person that you hear on this podcast, the person who writes stories about sensitive issues and advocates for what's right. So that holding me accountable, I care about that. And it was really good to talk to Jen and own up to the way that I unknowingly added to her pain and help her tell this story. So, um, by the way, in addition to this podcast, I've written a piece on harassment of women in sports media, including what we've learned since Jen's story went public and the ways we're still not really reacting correctly to a broken industry. You can find it on ESPN.com now. So go check that out after you listen. And now here's my conversation with Jen. That's what she said. So I have to admit, I'm both excited and a little bit nervous for this conversation. Probably the most nervous I've been for a podcast because I think we're going to dive into some pretty... Um, 
tough stuff, some necessary conversation, but also some uncomfortable realizations about um, our industry and and the ways that we are well behind still, even as we make progress um, in terms of issues of sexual harassment, in terms of uplifting and supporting other women, and in terms of uh, addressing the rampant harassment that still goes on from colleagues, from managers, from players, from coaches um, across the industry. And um, I'm so excited, Jen, that you were going to come on this because um, I've been listening to a lot of your interviews lately. And man, are you a good spokesperson for this, Um, which makes me sad because the reason that you have so much to offer is because of your own terrible experiences, but also makes me glad because you're choosing to put yourself out there in the hopes that you can make things better. And that's incredibly brave. And um, I hope it helps because, um, you know, looking back on your situation a decade ago and how you came way before Me Too and way before we all started to unpack the bullshit that we had been fed our whole lives about women being blamed for their own victimization. Uh, And you had to go through the ringer so that eventually we could hopefully come to a place where people get supported instead of um, attacked for their own uh, for their own harassment and, and victimization. So let's go back before all that. And just let people know who you are. You grew up in Tampa, went to school at USF for two years, and then transferred to Florida State, uh, where you double majored in criminology and psychology. Uh, but in the past, you've talked about working with your uh, was your then boyfriend on a lot of his sort of sports management homework and realizing you really liked it. And then the moment that sort of uh, much of the sports world got introduced to you was 2005. You're at a Florida State Miami football game. You're on ABC, right? Nationally televised game. And you're part of a group of girls called the FSU Cowgirls. You wear cowboy hats and sort of cowboy inspired outfits to the game. And Brent Musburger was calling the game, uh, someone who has now become known for making inappropriate comments that should be filtered first through his brain before coming out of his mouth as the person who's supposed to be representing (laughs) the watching of a game to a wide audience and not sharing his horny thoughts internally, externally. Uh, But he said, as the shot focused on you in the crowd, 1,500 red-blooded Americans just decided to apply to Florida State. Okay, before we get to the long-term ramifications of that, is... 2005. So you have a cell phone, right? Is it blowing up? How soon after that did you start to realize, oh my gosh. And this was the wild, wild west of the internet. So every single blog was essentially like, how do we find pictures of cute girls to get clicks? So you knew it was going to go everywhere. That was how they sold ads, you know, back in the day. And so actually I kind of knew right away, we, we weren't like an official thing. You know, I think everybody thought like the, the cowgirls was like an official thing, but it, it didn't really none of that really even happened until after that first game, you know, and then just kind of became like an unofficial title for just me and my friends going to football games, but none of it was planned. None of it was orchestrated. Uh, For the longest time I got on the internet the next day uh, to check out like the message boards and things like that. And some of the message boards were obviously talking about me and my girlfriends and posting pictures. And they're like, I don't even think these girls go here. They might be strippers. And I was like, really? So I actually, I got on the internet. I got on, I got on the message boards and I started defending myself and I started interacting with these people. And I gave those pictures a voice and I was like, no, she's a real person. And no, I don't go to class like this. So I, <laughs> you wouldn't know what classes I'm in. You could be literally sitting next to me right. in any of your classes I and not have know a cowboy it. hat on. <laughs> yeah, you know, I looked at like the cowgirl as like a, 
a wrestling gimmick. You know what I mean? Like I wasn't walking around like that all the time. I wasn't like living in kayfabe. You know, I, she was like there a lot of our football game. Like, yeah. Like that's a big part of the pageantry of sport is costumes or guys that write letters on their chests. Right. Or- the Jets have fireman Ed, you know what I mean? Right. Like we, we all have that. Every team has their super fan, you know, right. and that's, right. that's kind of what I became. It was me and the glitter guys. And I was like, I can't have that kind of commitment to shower all that stuff off after <laughs> right, the game. You right. know what I mean? I was like, God right. bless you guys, but that, you can keep that one. <laughs> right. So you looked super hot. So that's going to be fresh meat for the internet, um, especially back then. The Kissing Susie Colbert and the Deadspins and, you know, all of the websites that were sort of the burgeoning voice of young sports media on the internet, which was almost all male. And as someone who... Um, had just started to try to get into the sports industry. I was working as a PA at Fox Sports. I always felt like, I want to be in on these jokes. I want to be a part of this. But the barrier was always women are to be either, you know, leered at or made fun of, right? Oh, you know that thing when your girl wants to go to Vegas and ruin your boy's trip for fantasy football or, you know, that kind of thing, or check out this hot girlfriend of somebody. So it was... um it was a time that a lot of the people who grew up and out of that and are now st- still working in sports have since apologized for the way that they sort of covered things and interacted. What did you think but that of was, but that the was way that culture were... back then though, Sarah, right. think about it, you know, like in 2005, 2006, like it was all about like the Jenny McCarthy's, the Pam Anderson's, the Vita Guerrero's, like it was all about like that just overtly sexual vibe from women you know it's kind of like what we were supposed to aspire to be you know there weren't as many boundaries there in my opinion um I just finished watching the the framing Britney doc and I was like it's so right we were talking about the sexualization of women in a completely different way than we are now you know it's like now I think women are much prouder about owning their sexuality and not wanting to be shamed for it right because why should we be we're having conversations about the difference between sexual empowerment and sexual objectification. And that was something we could not identify the difference between before. And because it was blurred like that, then it became a judgment thing that women who were sexually empowered and owning it could not be decided between those who were being used for it or mistreated because of it. And so we couldn't, and there were we, some we didn't that it hold was a combination of the two. Right. Yeah, there right. Was and we, but we never, we never held it up as a positive. And as a society, we were taught to judge and criticize that even as we were completely aware that that was how the game was played. Right. Yeah. We were supposed to accept this double standard that the only way to succeed is because sex sells. But when sex sells, you should be criticized for using that bit of an edge that you have in an industry that will otherwise not even give you a foot in the door. Exactly. So, I, said, I say it all the time. I say, you know what? I played the game that you guys wanted me to play. I played yeah. by your rules. And look where it got me. Nowhere. You know, it's like, let me, they couldn't decide what they wanted me to be. It's like, you want me to be this, this hot girl but then when I fulfill that role for you, it's like you don't take me seriously and and think about what my goals are, what my aspirations are. Right. When it's just like, I'm just playing this game that you're asking me to play. Right. Well, and part of that is, too, the idea that once you've decided a woman fits in one box, it's impossible to see her as anything else. 
beautiful women can't be smart and funny and talented and, and whatever. But if you're not beautiful enough, we're not going to even give you a shot to prove that you're smart and talented and whatever, because we don't want to see you. We don't want to look at you, then you don't have a shot. But if we do want to look at you, we're going to trust that you're not qualified. And that might be that why was, I'm getting radio shows now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, my first jobs were all in radio too. Uh <laughs> But okay, so Brent Musburger says that, um, and it leads to doing some spokesperson jobs. You were on a bunch of, you know, hottest chick lists and you were in Maxim, you were in Playboy while you were choosing those things and kind of taking advantage of this little bit of what now uh, would get lost in the mess. But at the time was like this math, like people went viral totally differently back then. Everyone was paying attention to the same few stories instead of now where there's, you know, endless content. Um, what was your plan as you kind of tried to ride that wave? I don't think there was ever a plan. I just think that <laughs> I think it was just kind of a, well, let's hang on for dear life and see where this ride takes us. You know, I don't even know to this day. So like the way it happened is Playboy happened to be scouting on my university uh, looking for top 10 party school girls, whatever. And they actually reached out to, I bartended my way through just to pay for my books. I was on a full academic scholarship, but I bartended to pay for my, my living in my books and so I think they reached out to like a, a manager of a bar I worked at and they were like, do you know this girl? Is she, is she a real student here? And they said, yes. And they're like, get us an interview with her. And so I shot Playboy sometime in the beginning of November and like maybe two weeks later, Maxim reached out and they were like, Hey, you know, so we'd really love to have you. Have you done Playboy yet? And I was just like, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, like two weeks ago. And I was like, but I didn't show all, all of it, you know? <laughs> And they were like, well, we don't typically shoot people after they've done Playboy because it's like, why? You already seen you know? it, right? Exactly. We've already seen it all. Uh, but they said, when's it coming out? And I said, May. And they said, great. We'll see you in New York next week and we'll put you in March. <laughs> so I ended up getting you know, the opportunity to shoot for Maxim, I believe, like the first week of December. And then I think all of the writing opportunities and other opportunities for work came around in February because... Uh, a mutual friend of ours, Arash Markazi, got tasked with meeting me and writing an article about That's me. That's his beat. Arash's beat is beautiful women. It's, hey, go to a game with Kate Upton and film her doing the Dougie. Get on the jet with the Sports Illustrated swimsuit models he and go to the He has suit. the hardest life of all time, professionally. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So he, he asked, you know, if he could do an article on me. And then after speaking with me, he goes, you know, I actually think she's got a really fun interesting voice. And I think it might be cool to see her write a first person article. And so Sports Illustrated approved it. And I wrote the article in first person and it just kind of snowballed from there. They ended up liking my voice so much that they offered me a full-time job writing like lifestyle articles for college students and covering all of the games from the perspective of a college student. So like com. I said, yeah, yeah, for sportsillustrated.com. Yeah. Yeah. So this was around the same time that you referred to before when you started to get offers from places while you were still at school. This was all yeah. sort of a, a happening after that game. Absolutely. And it's like it, it, it's we're looking at it going, I'm getting offered these great jobs when that's the whole goal of college is to go to university, get a right. degree, go get right. a good pay, a good paying job. <laughs> so if they're already offering you the good paying job. You're like, well, why am I still at university slaving away and bartending five nights a week and all this stuff? So I left and I ended up finishing, like I said, online through the University yeah. of Florida. 
So you're working in a bunch of different gigs. I can't remember when you and I met super briefly. It was with Arash. Oh, there's a reason none of us remember that. <laughs> yeah. It was a Super Bowl party, actually. It was a Super Bowl party. Um, but um, I, t- so full disclosure, I remember meeting you and I remember having heard about you on all those websites. And I believe it was the 2008 Super Bowl party, probably, because it was after Nine. 2009. So it was after my Super Bowl adventure. Mm-hmm. And I remember meeting you. And I remember that on some of the websites, they were comparing me to you and that I was mad about it. Because full disclosure, I know myself. So I said to myself, well, this isn't who you are. This is just a Halloween costume that you wore once. And everyone's assigning all these qualities to you that aren't who you are. You're goofy. You're funny. You want to be on Saturday Night Live. You just want to make people laugh. You're actually pretty uncomfortable with being sexualized. And in real life, you're not very good at that interaction with people. So this picture was an easy way to go on the internet pull off this Super Bowl stunt that was never intended to involve anyone. It was just to get radio stations to see it and send me to the game. Just give me the tickets and not actually have to do anything. Um, and I thought of you as different. And the only reason I thought of you as different was because I didn't know you. I didn't know anything about you other than the pictures of you, which I judged in a way that I didn't want people to judge me for the same exact thing. But I couldn't see that that's what was happening. And we were talking about the Britney Spears thing. I look back now and realize. And and I've I've been reading a lot of uh, over reading over and over again Glennon Doyle's book Untamed, and she talks about this too. There is a subconscious training our entire lives to view other women as either the enemy or as to be criticized for being empowered or successful or confident. Right? Women are supposed to downplay themselves. They're supposed to apologize when they get rich and famous. Otherwise, people think they're obnoxious. They're supposed to be quiet and demure. And otherwise, we're supposed to dislike them. And that Britney Spears movie points out in a million different ways how the media tells us to hate Taylor Swift or Anne Hathaway or whoever the it girl of the moment is for no other reason than we decide we want to say she's overexposed and move to someone else. She's disposable in ways that successful and powerful men are not. And coming to terms with not being the person that you thought you were in terms of not judging, not criticizing, not believing the stories that people are trying to get you to believe about other people uh, is really painful. So yeah, you become disappointed in yourself that you allowed yourself to be manipulated that way and that you bought into the bullshit. And I, you know, I've apologized to you, not on this podcast, but I'm going to do it again now because my assumptions about you were the exact things I didn't want people to assume about me based on nothing other than a silly costume or a stunt that I thought was clever. And I thought everyone will know that that's not who I am, that it's just a smart idea. And I didn't offer you that same grace. And I didn't realize that I was trying to see you differently than myself um, for reasons that were unfounded. I really, I appreciate you saying that. It's just, um, you know, I think it's something that a lot of women, especially in our field, or just anyone that's just trying to be taken seriously on a professional level. It's like, we're not allowed to own our sexuality. We're not allowed to own that part of ourself um, because it's seen as unprofessional when it's like, we all know we all work in offices that are predominantly male and we see that men are allowed to do that. And so it's like, why were we never allowed to do that? Why was it frowned upon for us? You know, that's one of those things that I've always struggled with. There were gigs that I'd be up for, where I had an executive straight up tell me like, the only reason you're in here is because you got rid of your implants. Otherwise we would never have even considered you. 
And that's a harsh reality that never mind the fact that I'm a smart, capable woman that wants to do the work and wants to be good at this. They couldn't see past my, my, my looks. They couldn't see past a pair of cosmetically enhanced implants, you know? Well, and then there's the opposite, right? Where early on in my career, it was, yeah, we're going to give you a job. You get to talk about fantasy football. You get to have a writing credit. It's in a big fancy studio, but we need you to wear these outfits and we need double the push-up bra. We need your boobs as big and high as possible. So it's like, what's the message here? What's the message here? You're either going to tell me the only way to get the job is to play up the sexuality, but then once you're doing that, then you're judged as not qualified. It's a catch-22 and it's, it's, um, it's incredibly frustrating. And anybody who made it in the industry that has anything in their past like that, whether it's beauty pageant or swimsuit calendar or just pictures that still live on the internet with cleavage will be accused of using that. When I have male friends who, I have a one guy friend who was a stripper. He's in, you know, calendars in a banana hammock and no one will ever go looking for it or care <laughs> because they're, they're not going to question whether a guy and is you know qualified. What? It's not part of his job interview no. either. You know what I no. mean? No one cares that he's got banana hammock pictures on the no, internet. Where it's like it's not. Us. And that's something that you and I had a, you know, had a very candid conversation about, about articles that I've seen people write about me specifically when everything came out in 2010 with Deadspin. And that is that I live and I die by my search history still. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that that's fair because so much of the media coverage at the time wanted to paint me as the bad guy because of the way I looked. If I didn't look the way I did, I don't know that the media and quite frankly, just the general public treats me the way that it did because everyone was not ready to see the other person. They weren't ready to see one of their sports heroes as a bad guy. Well, and also because, and I, I I, did a column about this. I was trying to understand why anybody would defend Larry Nasser, the U.S. Olympics and Michigan State doctor who ab- abused and, and raped all of those girls. I couldn't figure out what possible reason would someone have to defend him? Why would people be in the mentions of these young girls who were 12, 13, 14, 15, accusing them of bringing it on themselves? What is the mentality? And so I went digging for that and found that there's a there's a theory called the just world ideology, which is essentially that you don't want to live in a world where bad things happen to good people. So you have to look for a reason that someone would bring this upon themselves. And in your case, it's very easy to demonize a beautiful woman with a lot of cleavage and to say, well, she was asking for it, right? It's the same tired trope that we apply to any woman who's victimized if she doesn't fit essentially none status. Like we will, oh, crazy, we will though, carry Sarah. down. Well, it's crazy though, because when everything came out in 2010, I didn't even look the way. Right. But those pictures were wanting me to. But those pictures existed. And they were easy to go ahead and get photographers that had shot me during my college years to hand over those pictures for a nice paycheck. Because let's face it, what's going to sell more copies of the New York Post? Is it going to be a picture of a creepy old man or is it going to be this? hot girl. You want to know what, what more about her. You want to know what she did because she's got to be the, the Jezebel in this situation, you know? And that was, that was hard because it's like, I watched even people down to like the photographers that I worked with, that I trusted with my images, sell me out when it came down to it, just for a paycheck without even asking whether or not it was okay or whether or not I approved of it. And it's just like, you know what? I probably would have allowed you 
to use my images to get paid at some point, but it's just like, why didn't I have, why didn't I have any say in what images you used? Because there were plenty of pictures of me fully clothed on the internet. And, and furthermore, it was just like, why are you guys using pictures of me that don't reflect who I am as a person now? Right. Well, and that's easy for you. It's easier for you to say, oh, you look this way. So you deserve what happened to you. Right. Right. 100%. I mean, I still have that when people decide to attack me over stories that I write, uh, uh, particularly in support of of women's issues. They'll find some photo on a, from like 12 years ago, and I'll just respond. I'll be like, yeah, wasn't I hot back then? Because I'm like, what, what do you want me to say? It's a 12-year-old photo of one job that I did. I don't really know what else to say when you pull it out as some sort of proof of the work that I'm doing a dozen years later and how it reflects. And it's so me. crazy because when you look at those pictures, you shouldn't feel shame. You should look at that not. and be like, you should look at those pictures and be like, man, I should have been kinder to that girl. Because let's face it, we are programmed as women to hate everything about ourselves, like our bodies, our hair. Oh, I wish my, you know, my butt was bigger. My waist was smaller. My boobs were bigger. You know, like my, I hate my, I hate my thighs. I hate this. And it's just like, if I could talk to 21 year old me, I'd be like, you know, you don't have to show everybody it, but good for you. (laughs) Yeah. And you should, and you should like yourself and own it. Let's go back because we've been we've been talking about it without addressing it. And I want to get your your side of it, because I actually in the last couple of weeks, even in the interviews that you've done, um, mostly as a result of, of, of the Mets GM, Jared Porter, getting fired for sending illicit images to a young reporter and now Mickey Calloway, multiple women coming out uh, against the former Mets manager now um, working on the Angels staff suspended currently, but um, with allegations of inappropriate texting and behavior from him as well. You've been back in the limelight talking about something that happened to you now 10 plus years ago. Um, and I'm learning now so much more truth about what happened than I did when it was covered initially, like you said, with a slant that wanted to paint you as somehow having brought this on yourself. And I couldn't believe the fact that I just found out that you have never met Brett Favre. You have never yeah. met him. You've never shaken his hand, said hello. It's unbelievable. So let's go back to 2008. You were hired by the Jets to be a game day host. This is essentially someone who works in stadium, interviewing fans, doing bits for the big screen, um, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. Listen, and- Sarah, let's not mince any words. It's a cheerleader with a microphone because <laughs> I didn't have the talent to dance. That's what it was. <laughs> it's a game day host. I'm not trying to paint myself as some hardcore journalist. You know what I mean? Oh, you did interviews, something- right? With fans I and stuff. interviews with, yeah. with fans and I hosted content contests with fans yeah. but it's like if you've no, ever there's been no to shame a sporting in that game. event i did it no. for the chicago sky a couple times no shame in that game <laughs> yeah there's usually a lot of um you know interviewing drunk fans and right. uh and being like please don't show how bad this actually is on the on the on the big screen you know like on the jumbotron or it's like you know hosting games or, or interviewing celebrities before the game but i was not a hardcore journalist and that's something that i i want to always make sure that people understand specifically women journalists understand i'm not trying to say i was the same as you you know but i know necessary. it doesn't matter whether it doesn't matter whether you went to journalism school it doesn't matter what that particular job or role was because that 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 to me feels like it's in defense of people who would not empathize with you because they felt more important or better and that's completely unrelated to the situation I know it, it still doesn't make it hurt any less though. Uh, in terms of like, I, I feel like women specifically female journalists thought I was 
somehow diminishing their work by being who I was, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Like I was not one of them, but I was being portrayed as one of them, you know, especially once I got my, my show in New York with the daily line, I think there was this, this thing where they, they thought I was trying to portray myself as a journalist when I simply wasn't, I've never really thought of myself as a journalist. I've done journalist work. I have, I have written, you know, legitimate articles for various publications, but it's never been my end goal. You know, I've always seen myself more as like a sports personality. I always wanted to bring a different spin to it. I wanted to in, like inject my personality into it and be as authentic as possible when it came to my work. And that is something that I think all of my work prior to really owning who I was after the initial Brett Favre thing happened, when I dealt with it all very privately in 2008, I think it really caused me to re-examine how I was portraying myself to the outside world because I did internalize it when it happened. And I said, well, I obviously brought this on myself by looking the way that I did. So I actually got my implants taken out. I ripped all my fake nails off, which is very painful. Don't advise doing it, especially in the dead of winter in New York. They're basically like hermit crabs with no shells. Um, <laughs> I took out all my extensions. I, I relaxed on the fake tan a little bit because it was getting a little Jersey Shore. And I really just got back to the basics. I I wanted people to see me for me and I wanted them to know who I was beyond just a pair of implants. I did an article with Cosmopolitan about it. Um, it, it was a it was a real summer and like, quite frankly, like the beginning of 2009, it was a real year of growth for me as a person. And that's why when everyone started attacking me, when everything came out in, in October of 2010, I was just like, wait, wait, but that's, that's not who I am anymore. But it's like, by then everyone had already kind of judged me. They had already prejudged me and who I was and what I was about based on old pictures of me, if that makes sense. So it happens in 2008. Brett Favre gets traded to the Jets. You're the game day host, and he sends you text messages, voicemails asking to come to his hotel room, explicit photos. And don't you, forget the MySpace messages. You and, know. That's where you met all of the oh, I remember people. I, I actually did meet several boyfriends on MySpace when I lived <laughs> in L.A. back in the day. That was like the pre-dating website. Um, you just slide into those messages. Um, so... And put them in your top eight. And then they're like, wait, why are these other and guys? And when you're the not in their top eight, you're like, we need to have a conversation. <laughs> what are we to each other? Um, so he sends all this stuff. And I will fully admit, I was like, well, why would someone send all that stuff unless she was messaging him back or bringing it on or unless they were hooking up? And um, that's bullshit, right? I was incredibly naive. Um and I was especially naive to the idea of a man who feels entitled continuing to go after something because he believes that he's owed it. And we saw that with Jared Porter, 60 plus honest, straight messages yeah. without getting one back is is insanity. And there is always an assumption, oh, she must have been messaging back or asked for something or prompted it. And then you realize that there is no necessary prompt for that. There are people who feel entitled to doing that. Um, and it was, well, because, it was wild to me that you had never met. 
because Sarah, that I had never met him, I honestly didn't know whether or not it was him. And I still don't know whether or not it was him because he never cooperated with the investigation. I just know that I was cyberbullied. Right. Well, you know, you know that he admitted at least to some of it, which leads you to assume that it was all him and he just wanted to admit to the stuff that was less uh, implicating. Salacious. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Less actionable by me. Right. Um, Yeah. I didn't know who I was engaging with is what it came down to. I thought I was honestly being punked, you know, Uh, because it is a boy's culture and sometimes stuff like that happens. You know, it's like, oh, you better be able to take a joke. You have to be able to roll with it. I, that, that kind of stuff still happens where guys will make comments and we're supposed, oh, Bart, if you get offended, then it's like, oh, you can't take a joke. And it's like, yeah, lighten I up. can take a joke, yeah. but oh, yeah, lighten up. We're at work, so that's not appropriate joke. <laughs> what I've started doing is when a guy says something that's wildly inappropriate and we're in a professional environment, I ask him to explain the joke to me. I'll be like, I don't get it. And then when he's got to explain the joke out loud and he realizes how inappropriate it is, it's like, oh. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and now you see why I don't find it funny. Right. Yeah. That's that's the go-to. From now on, just ask them to explain the joke. Most of the time they'll just be so embarrassed they can't. Yeah. Don't that's also my scared. go-to on the internet when people say awful things. I'll say, Oh, can you explain it? Or just why? And I'll ask questions and then they'll get so caught up in the fact that they have actual no basis for what they're saying. Um, okay, so this happens in two thousand eight. Um, what is your reaction? What did you do? And then eventually why did it come out in 2010? Oh, it's a longer story than that. But yeah, I um, my initial reaction is once the person kind of implied who they were, by the way, they never said their name. Right. They were basically like, you know, I'm an older guy. Blah, I'm new to the team. Blah, blah, blah. It was well, like and a we heard one voicemail, right, where he did say it's Brett. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. So not identifying full name, but yeah. But again, like I said, I've never met the person. I don't I don't know if any of these are legitimate at the time. I just know that it's very much implied to me and it's said to me that my job is not as important as his. And by him or by the team when do you you report it and they don't care? By him. By him. Um and and it's it's all it's all in writing. I mean, I have 18 binders. I had to, people don't realize when the NFL investigation happened, I had to give them everything. I had to give them 18 binders of my text messages, my emails, my MySpace messages. Like I basically had to just lay out all of my innermost workings of my life. Like, you know what I mean? Like we say things in text all the time that we're like, would we like, no one else is going to see this except for the person that it's intended to, you know what I mean? Right. And it's like here, they got access to my entire life. Right. And it was really hard, especially for me with the mindset that I was in, in 2008, having to reread where I was at, because by end of November, I was in a terrible headspace. You know, I was, I had just moved to New York city. I had a bunch of job opportunities there that all went away when the, you know, when the, when everything crashed and all I had left was this job at the jets that I was absolutely miserable in, but I was clinging on to for dear life. And because it was the only income that I had at the time. And I had to self-medicate when I went into work, you know, I, I was seeing a therapist actively, um, there wasn't, a, and I'm like, I'm sure my job performance 
really went downhill because I was scared to even be there, you know? Um, but it was the only, I had to keep showing up for the paycheck, you know, which is a shame because I feel like there's so many women out there that can relate to it where it's like, Oh man, I've got to, you know, I've got to pay for daycare for my kids or I've got to put food on my table being a single mom. But yet the meanwhile, they're, they're putting up with harassment from people that are in a place of power from them, you know, higher than them. And their job is at risk, but it's like they had to weigh, well, is my self-worth, you know, more important than taking care of my family and providing for myself, you know? And that's a hard, that's a hard math equation to do. Um, you know, so I was, I was going to work. I was, <laughs> I was on, <laughs> to quote the, the hospital that I was Baker acted in, in that November, uh, I was on enough drugs to kill Keith Richards, basically, was what they told my dad. And um, again, I dealt with it all very privately. My friends knew what was going on, a few of them. Um, but the majority of the people in my life just knew I was struggling and they just thought it was like an adjustment to being in a new city and not having the support of my family and being away from home. They had no idea that it was all this other stuff. My own family didn't even know about the Brett Favre stuff while I was there because I was scared that if they found out, they would tell me to leave that job and to come home. And I had worked so hard for everything that I had in my career at the time. You know, as silly as the, a game day host job sounds, it's like I had worked so hard to be on my own, you know, and to keep this career going and to, you know, not not have to listen to my dad ask me when I was going to get a real job over and over and over again, you know? And I thought if I lost this job or I had to walk away from this job because of what I was going through, I would just lose it all. Right. You know, was, was the, the self-medication and the struggles just showing up to work, was that during the time that he was constantly messaging you or were you still working there for a, a stretch after you reported it to the team? Oh, I mean, I worked there until my contract, you know, ended, which would have been right after the season, you know, the last game, which is ironic because when you look at how the NFL investigation unfolded in 2010, my contract ended, like I said, at the end of the season, whenever the last game was, and they basically, they ran out my statute of limitations to be able to do anything when it came to making their ruling, you know, because that was the thing everybody wanted to paint me. They wanted to say that it was all about money, you know, when it came out in 2010. And the fact of the matter is I never sued anyone. I, I didn't want any money. I didn't even want to cooperate with their investigation because I knew they weren't going to take, they weren't going to look after me. Right. Like, and that's something that I think everyone needs to understand. And that is you can do everything right. You can report things to the proper people. You can go through the right chain of command and it can still end up costing you your job because at the end of the day, HR is not there to protect you. They are there to protect the interests of the company and to make sure that they don't get sued. And so it's like once they, they think that you don't have enough or you don't have the means to do anything about it, they can just get rid of you. And it's, it is retaliation. Right. You know? Or even, but, even beyond protecting whether they'll be sued or otherwise, it's a value proposition. Do we want this multi-million dollar star to be the one who we do right by? Or do we want it to be 
this disposable game day host. And that's that's what they and that's, do with but that's secretaries. That's the same thing that's and, happening now. Yeah, and that's, Sarah, that's what I think about Jared Porter. Like yeah. he's a brand new GM. Would they do that if it was a superstar player on the team? Absolutely not. Would that's they do exactly it if it's the a secretary and a front office member? No, the secretary would get told to go away. Non-disclosure, you know, agreement, just like we saw with um the entire Washington football team, whatever it is, thirty plus women who all have NDAs to leave because we would rather value the important person up top who's doing the wrong things and just get rid of the person below. It's so crazy to me that sports don't value women in general because sports need women. Sports need women as fans. They need women in, you know, as, as athletes, they need women as as sideline reporters. They need women as journalists. They need women because it's a, aspect of the game that just so often gets overlooked and treated like it doesn't matter. But they still want our money. They still want our money as fans. They want to pander to us and sell us pink jerseys and, you know, cute little outfits with rhinestones on them. And it's like, well, if you care enough about us to make us this specialized gear, which is super patronizing, but you don't care enough about us with these social issues, it's like, why should I spend my money with you? Why should I be continue to be a fan of your product when you don't care what happens to me? Right. Because for every... If the NFL would have cared what happened to me, I don't think we'd still be seeing as much of this as we do. They haven't learned anything. The pattern is the same repeatedly. And to your point, I think one of the things that it's hardest for people to wrap their minds around unless they've actually been in the situation is the idea that you have done nothing except for exist and do your job. A man comes along and acts in an inappropriate and unprofessional and sometimes illegal way. And the result is that you have your life blown up. You have to sit in a room with men and they get to go through all of your text messages to your friends and your photos and look at your body or look at your whatever or analyze whether you're valuable enough to fight for. And you have to be judged by strangers and you have to be judged by journalists and you end up on the New York Post every week and your life is torn apart for something that you genuinely had nothing to do with. You've never even met this person. And I think I got uncomfortable just thinking about you having to be in a room with binders of personal information, whether or not it's anything meaningful, something as silly as telling your girlfriend, like, oh, I'm going to be late. I'm, I'm, I'm getting my chin waxed. Right. I'm just thinking of like the most random shit that you could say or some breakup that you had over text that now they're reading the back and forths of that. And a bunch of people have all this information about your life that's private because somebody else came in and f-ed up your life that you had nothing to do with. And the way that we treat the victims of these things is disgusting and sad. It's and sad I'm- because throughout the entire process, though, Sarah, I didn't encounter a single woman. Like I didn't encounter a single female employee of the NFL or attorney or advocate, none. Every person I dealt with was an old white man. And so just imagine sitting there, you know, you're like 28 years old at the time and looking through all of these super painful memories. I've already, I've already acknowledged my mindset at that time and the state I was in and my therapy records will prove that. Um, 
And I've got to sit there, like you said, and validate all of these, these terrible things that were going through my head and relive them by going through all these text messages with them. And I'm still like having to answer questions that are so accusatory. Like if we had recorded these sessions, people would be appalled at the way I was spoken to. I finally, I got so mad. I remember standing up in the middle of this meeting with the NFL investigator, my attorney, and my manager, where I was like, if you do not stop speaking to me like I did something wrong, I'm going to leave. And then it's going to be three guys sitting around, binders, filled with pictures of another man's junk. So you better think about how you'd like the rest of this meeting to go. And I'm going to go downstairs and I'm going to get a coffee. And I walked out. Mm. And I walked around the block and I cried. So this happened in 2008. You are struggling personally and in your private life, some friends know, but most people don't. You're My trying to work your way didn't know. Yeah. So you're trying to work your way through this by self-medicating, by therapy. You get to a place where in 2009, you revamp your image. You take your implants out. You, you affect your physical appearance because this has internally made you question whether your presentation has affected the way people value you or how they see you or how they think you should be treated but this is not public yet. You're dealing with all of this and it's awful enough to have those meetings and that investigation. Although that investigation came after. That investigation came out in 2010. So you're just dealing with like, this was a job and and it was scary to go to a job and wonder if you were going to run into him or wonder if you were going to have to have an engagement with this person that you've still never met, but that is harassing you nonstop. Then in 2010, you tell a, a, a friend at the time AJ Delario, who was the editor in chief of Deadspin. Friend is a loose word. Okay. I think okay. it was more of a, of a working acquaintance. Okay. Yes. A working I acquaintance. Was writing some, I was ghost writing some articles for Deadspin, and I was helping them with a lot of the blind items that you see because you and I both know when you go to these Super Bowl parties, there's some insane stuff that happens. And as women, one of the many perks is, is that we get invited to a lot of these parties. Mm-hmm. And Sometimes male writers at these websites don't. And so it was kind of like we had this inside view at all of the crazy stuff that was happening to these parties. And so I was helping them ghost write some articles about Super Bowl and I was, you know, doing like some season preview stuff for them. And I had been warned about AJ and I had been told like, listen, he can be very charming, but just know he cannot be trusted. He's not a good person. And I always, it's like one of my biggest flaws. I I want to see the good in people. Mm -hmm. I want to not think that everyone is as bad as they're made out to be. And with AJ and I, it kind of reminds me of that old like story about the frog and the scorpion where the frog's like, you know, gets asked by the scorpion, like, hey, can you take me across the river? And the frog's like, yeah, of course. And then halfway across the river, it's like the scorpion stings the frog. And the frog's like, why would you do that? I was doing something for you. I was helping you. And he's like, I'm a scorpion. Duh. That's just what I do. You know, that's AJ Delario and my relationship in a nutshell. Right. So you tell him, you confide in him that Brett Favre had sent you all this stuff, that this is what had gone down with, with the team and you presume that it's off the record and you tell him not to use it and you tell him not to run it. And he starts digging. 
Because AJ at the time was working was working for Deadspin, and Deadspin kept wanting him to publish all these pictures of hot girls. They're like, that's what's getting us clicks, you know, so we want you to do this. And, like, AJ was just one of those types. Now that I've gotten to know him a little more after the fact, he's just one of those types that wanted to buck the system. And it was like, oh, you want me to cover all these hot girls? I'll cover all these hot girls, but I'm going to put make it really uncomfortable, and I'm going to put a bunch of pictures of dongs on here as well. That's just who he was. That was his way of just giving the system the middle finger. Um, and so we got into a conversation about, because it was at the time when, like, the, you know, like, I believe Anthony Weiner stuff was happening and things right. like that. You know, it was dong pictures were coming more and more mainstream. And AJ and Deadspin were a big part of that. And so he was telling me about all these athletes that were making all these dumb decisions. And I was like, just confided in him and said, yeah, you know, I'm like, you think that's bad? I'm like, I went through some, I went through the ringer. I went through it. Um, you know, when I worked at the jets and just, we just talked about it and he just acted like he was just very concerned and, you know, like he was listening to me. And then sure enough, um, a couple months later, he started asking me, you know, well, would you ever let me run this? And I was like, no, I'm like, that was something that was said to you completely off the record. It was something that I never wanted to share like publicly. It was just something that I was like sharing water cooler talk with an, with a, a coworker. And I was like, under no circumstances would I ever want something like this tied to me. I was like, because it just won't, it won't end well for me. I knew already. I'm like, that would not end well for me. Um, and that's why most like, of us don't report it because we know no. that the system is always going to negatively affect the person reporting, even if it's not their fault. Yeah. So he ends up running it. He manages to get pictures and voicemails, despite the fact that you had told AJ in confidence that you didn't want it to be public when it hits that site, how do you find out? Or did he give you a heads up before? He gave me a heads up. He gave me like a 24 hour notice that he was going to publish it. And I just remember this feeling of just complete like free fall where I was like, my life is going to be over in 24 hours. And I just remember going to Central Park and just laying on my back on this rock, just looking up at the sky and just crying and just like holding my breath like I can't believe this is like and blaming myself entirely being like I can't believe I put myself in this position and just kind of bracing for how bad it was going to be because I honestly had no idea right. um he ended up running it earlier than he said he was going to because I just remember waking up the next day and I was on the post cover mm. and I woke up and all my emails had been hacked like I had gotten alerts that all my email passwords had been changed. Whoa. Yeah. How does that happen? And I don't know. You tell me all my email passwords had been changed and um, the invasion of privacy kind of starts there. You know, I had photographers and like paparazzi waiting outside the studio that I, what I filmed at every day. Um, and they harassed my poor coworker, um, Molly Karam. You were doing the versus show at the time. Yeah. But they harassed my poor coworker, Molly Karam, because, you know, all brunettes look alike, apparently. And um, we're shoving cameras in her face. They shoved cameras in my face. They followed me home um, at night. It was insane. And again, just a reminder, 
that you laid down and looked at the sky and knew your life was ruined for doing absolutely nothing because somebody decided to send you inappropriate things and send you things that you didn't respond to and didn't want and didn't ask for. Um, the only thing I did in this whole thing, Sarah, was I trusted the wrong person. Right. Or that I people. take full responsibility Or trusted many for. people or trusted the system, which, you know, you and I have talked about when the NFL investigation, I'm putting it in quotation marks because it sounds uh, not at all like it intended to actually come up with the truth, um, released that they didn't find much wrongdoing from from Brett Favre. He was fined $50,000 for failure. It wasn't even cooperate. that. Yeah. It's not that they didn't find any wrongdoing. It was it's that, just that he didn't cooperate. That cooperate. was the loophole that they used. But they did say that I did nothing wrong. That's right. actually the that's actually the statement they released is that they found no wrongdoing on my part, but that they were unable to like they were unable to get any information from him. He that's admitted to sending voicemails. Thing. He did not admit to sending images. The NFL said they couldn't conclude that he had violated the personal conduct policy. There wasn't enough evidence to be sure he had sent the photos. They fined him fifty thousand dollars. It's a barely a slap on the wrist. And I, I think it was right when I started, I was pretty early. Yeah, I think it was soon, right when I started at ESPNW. And we had these round tables where they would ask a bunch of us questions to give answers to, sometimes lighthearted, sometimes serious. And they asked a bunch of us, none of whom had reported or researched the story, none of whom had worked on it, for our reaction to the punishment. And I naively and ignorantly said something to the effect of, well, it's just hard to believe that nothing would have, like she did nothing and he just randomly sent pictures like that. Because again, I'm completely naive to the behavior of predators and harassers and also completely naive to institutions covering up for what what's best for them. I said, oh, well, the NFL did an investigation. Now I'm so cynical for good reason because I've been in the industry and doing the work long enough. But I wrote that. A couple other colleagues wrote unforgivable things about about you. And my favorite one was probably this is a victimless crime. Yeah. Yeah. Other than Brett Favre's wife was, I think, the end of that yes. one. Um, and you go back and read them, and it's sort of remarkable to me the editors or other people weren't aghast at what we wrote. And I think it's a reflection of where we were as a society. Not not everyone. There were plenty of people who knew about these behaviors and understood the nuances of harassment. We were not them. And and what I always think of as the pivot point of Ray Rice and how many networks had to scramble when they realized they had a panel of eight men saying things like, well, women shouldn't provoke this or asking Ray Rice's fiance to be in a room while asking her about the abuse as if she can safely be honest with investigators while he's sitting right next to her, the man who abused her. That was a massive pivot point in our industry where we realized that these social issues and the way they overlapped with sports needed to be covered intelligently and with nuance and with understanding. And a lot of us that decided we cared about doing that work and helping women put our heads down and started actually learning. And I go back and look at what I wrote about you and what I thought about you or what I assumed was real because of what people told me and the way the information was presented. And it makes me deeply sad for how long it took me to become someone who is a true advocate and ally and not just someone who believed myself to be. And it also just made me sad for all the people now who have not gotten to the point yet where they can say, I need to unravel a life of being taught ingrained misogyny, ingrained 
hatred and distrust of women, a desire to believe that the world isn't a place where innocent women get treated badly. They must have done something. Um, and so I, I apologize for that paragraph that I wrote being any part of the pain caused to you and for not being someone who at the time felt I had the agency or voice or even the interest in you know what though yeah I don't I don't blame anyone for not supporting me it hurts and it and it and it it re-victimizes me in a way when all this stuff happens or when me too happens I can't I can't quite adequately put into words how left behind I felt you know what I mean because look, I look at pictures of me in 2008 and I, and I look at what happened to me and I say, you know, you know what society decided that I just wasn't the right martyr for that cause. And there's still people on the internet that I engage with on a regular basis. And I don't know why I think it's cause I'm just a glutton for punishment or because I'm just still trying to change my own narrative. And I'm trying to change the narrative in general for victims everywhere that no matter what you wear, no matter what you look like, you still deserve to be able to go to a workplace and be tre treated with respect. You deserve to be able to feel safe. And that's what I want people to take away from my message. I know that I was not the right martyr for the cause in 2010, but I feel like the damage has already been done for me in a way. And it's like, if I can't make good from all the bad that's happened to me, then what was it all worth? You know, right. I, um, I, I teach classes actually from time to time. Like I guess teach at like the university of Florida for sports media. And I, I go in and I, you know, speak to classes at Florida state for, for sports media. And I, I have really hard conversations with, with rooms full of not only, you know, young female journalists, but also like athletes you know, star athletes at these schools that are also preparing for, you know, potentially a career in journalism, you know, after their playing days are done. And I have really hard conversations with them about what it means to have conversations that are that are off the record. And I want to change the narrative and I want to change just the industry in general and how we treat women in this workspace. Right. And I well, think that it starts honestly with education. I completely agree. And it starts with putting out into the open the things that are subconscious. The ideas that we have about men can't control themselves. So if there is any hint of sexuality or tease from a woman, then their behaviors are validated and can be excused. And she is the one to be blamed. I mean, it's literally the doesn't even have to be a tease though, Sarah. Sometimes no, no, no. it can just be, oh, she's they will, kind to they, me. They will label it a tease is what I'm saying. Oh, they yeah. will assign it as a tease that their behaviors then couldn't be prevented. It's literally the story of Adam and Eve, right? Let's blame everything on the woman and everything that results afterwards is her fault. And also the, the centuries long ingrained idea of women can't be trusted or believed right and that can be that can be traced to ideas of hysteria women are not telling us honest things they're hysterical and now they have to be treated by literally psychotherapy or medication that women are not the protagonists in their own lives they're either the assistants or getting in the way of the successes of men that is for the most part how we view all of these incidents and in your case 
because you didn't fit the perfect mold of what we wanted out of a victim, like you said, and it, it was heartbreaking for me to read this. You said, I'm sorry, 2010 didn't see me as a good enough martyr for the cause. I'm sorry, 25 year old me didn't deserve your empathy and compassion because I looked a certain way, but it won't stop me for fighting what for what's right, because this will keep happening if no one does. It's heartbreaking because you did deserve for everyone to defend you and fight for you and give the same energy they gave me to and give the same energy they gave this woman who came forward about Jared Porter. And because you came before all of that, instead, we fell back on all the bullshit that we've been trained, which is to judge you and let him off the hook. And um, and that that that's really sad. And I can imagine that the tendency that women have to blame themselves when they're victimized is only furthered for you if other people are chiming in and adding to that. It's not just that. It's like it also, once it happens to you once, people don't realize that once the initial trauma happens and society goes, yeah, but you deserved it. You basically say, oh, so I have to accept any behavior like that going forward. You know what I mean? Because I deserve it. And I think it sets a dangerous precedent where you have people that are just constantly being re-victimized by the system because they've been taught that that's what they're supposed to accept. And because others see you that way, right? I mean, the reactions of other people to you and 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 this happening to you at the same time as the ease of strangers to to comment or to or to contact you on the internet means that for years after that, you're having to still be, reminded of it or treated a certain way by people who view you because of this incident as, as like you said, the person at fault or someone not to be respected. It's, um, it's just a very, I think we, you and I spoke about it before where it's like one of my last classes I took at the university of Florida was actually about victimology. It was part of my criminology, my criminology course study. And I had to, learn all these things. And it was just like, if I hadn't taken those courses, I don't know that I would have understood what was happening to me when, when things would repeat themselves. And I would, I would, I would just revert to, Oh, I might as well blame myself because obviously I'm, I've had to do a lot of hard work and I've had to look at myself and go, okay, I I always make sure, am I doing something to contribute to this scenario? And the answer is no, it's just, no one has taught people how to behave with any kind of workplace decorum, you know, when it comes to this weird power dynamic that women are constantly faced with, like I said, until you have more women in positions of power and more people of color in positions of power, we are always going to be at the whims of whatever white men find acceptable. And if the accountability isn't there, when something is rooted out, then it makes people feel safe. And right now, all the messages that we get from the most putrative crimes and the most terrible treatment is that this is an industry that will protect men and punish women over and over and over again. Very rarely is the case when someone is caught and held accountable. Usually there is a very quick turnaround period of disappearing, creating positive PR and getting right back to the job. Meanwhile, we bemoan the lost potential of the man who did something wrong to bring himself down. And we don't at all discuss the toll that it takes on the women. And and I want to ask you about that because I've heard in your other interviews, you speak very plainly about the years that followed 
where you had trouble finding jobs, paying rent, continuing a career that got sidetracked by somebody else and nothing of your own doing. <laughs> Everyone's like, well, she can just go out and get a new job. She can just go out and get a regular job like the rest of us. That was one that I loved having shoved in my face all the time. And it's just like, yeah, I did. I did do that. You know, <laughs> people don't realize it's like I was bartending just to be able to pay crisis publicist, you know, and to pay all of the money, like to be able to pay my bills um, after it all happened, you know, and luckily, like I had enough friends in like the, the New York, like nightclub scene that they would allow me to come and kind of work under an alias and hope people didn't recognize me. But again, it's really hard to not be recognized when you're on the cover of the post every, you know, few weeks. It's like, I got stuck paying all of these, these bills and losing everything to clean up a mess that was never mine to begin with. And like I said, I've had every odd job known to mankind just to like be able to make ends meet on the side while still pursuing this dream and still fighting for it because I know I can do the work. I did it once before, you know? Have you heard from Brett Favre ever? No, honestly, I, I don't want to hear from him. I, um, I've, I've literally had nightmares about actually having to like be in the same room with him because it's like, how can someone cause that much pain to someone and not care about what happens to them? Yeah. It's, I think people have done a really good job rewriting his history. I was going to say, do you, how do you react when he does interviews or when people want to call him up to talk about football or anything else? Like I said, I, I don't know how he's managed to do it other than, like I said, I was, I was painted as the bad guy throughout the entire thing. I think the only thing he ever really lost from it was the Wrangler deal, you know? Um, there's such a quickness to forgive and to want second chances for men. And the same just doesn't exist for the profile of a woman. And back to that Britney Spears thing, Jamila Jamil posted a whole bunch of stuff about this the other day. And it was so true. The way that, um, a woman can get brought down by nothing, no actual malice, no bad act, just either being overexposed or now we find her annoying or now there's too much of her, but a man can be a drug addict or a, a, a rapist or a harasser. And if they and wait, he's a redemption he's story, a redemption story. So there's plenty of very high profile men that we could point to that have done something bad and quote unquote earned or been given a second chance because we love the idea of redemption. And then women like someone like Catherine Heigl, who like the story on her was she was mean on set or something. And then she couldn't find work for years after that. Meanwhile, there's people committing actual crimes that people are in a rush to redeem. Um, and there, there are so many underlying psychologies to that and aspects of our society that feed into the idea that women are disposable. So once we're done with them, we don't care if they're redeemed but men are valuable and have to, we, we can't possibly lose out on what Brett Favre might say next. So let's make sure we rehab him and his image so that he can come back in and talk to us about football. And one of the most fascinating things um, 
in terms of interactions I've had with people kind of in the same circle with him is I got contacted by Jeff Perlman, who wrote the book uh, Gunslinger about Brett Favre. And he was doing obviously a bunch of extensive research and asked me if I would speak on the record about it. And I just said, I I really didn't want to be involved in it. But, you know, I, I told him I would basically just validate anything he needed me to say, oh, yes, this happened. No, this didn't happen. You know, I would basically fact check for him, but that I wasn't going to participate and and give any kind of statements or anything like that. And he was very understanding about my headspace in terms of this kind of stuff. And he came back after he had done all of his interviews and he had finished the book and whatnot. And he's like, I can unequivocally say that Jen Sturger didn't deserve what happened to her and that we all owe her an apology. Um, and it's just, um, it's just nice to see it put in print. <laughs> it's nice to see um, a man who has done all of the research and has all the facts in front of him say that because like I said, I'm still waiting for that apology because Look, the NFL did such a good job convincing everyone that I didn't exist anymore. Like, they've erased that chapter. Like, they they continue to celebrate him. They continue to treat him like the folk hero that he is. And they've essentially, they they act as if I've died. And, and in a way, I have, because everyone's forgotten about me. They've forgotten about that chapter. You are doing a lot of these interviews now to speak to the fact that many things have changed since this happened to you, including the way that we react to women in these situations, usually, but that many things haven't changed. The behaviors are the same, the patterns, and many of the ways that people react to women, including the the, the treatment of victims as the bad guy, um, which happens in cases of domestic violence, assault, harassment. There will always be those who are somehow in the head and want to go after these women and find them and harass the number of women who drop their cases because someone finds out the name and goes to their house and harasses them or sends threatening messages on behalf of some athlete that they love that they don't even know. I got a letter written to me from prison, from, from Jacksonville prison during this whole ordeal, basically, um, outlining everything that they were going to do to me when they got out. And it, and, and those type of things are, are so commonplace where it's like, I still to this day get death threats mm-hmm. over a man that I've never met. Yep. I wrote a story about Kobe Bryant after he passed and his complicated legacy that addressed all the wonderful things about him and also the complicated history of Colorado and um, got lots of death threats, including one that I had to call the police on because the person said repeatedly I was going to get murdered in broad daylight in a gruesome way. Um, So yeah, it's a, it's a protection of people who have been idolized and turned into, like you said, heroes. Um, And anybody who gets in the way of that um, is disposable or, or threatened or, uh, Otherwise, and we're not saying, and we're not saying though, discount any of their, we're not trying to discount any of the stuff that they do on the field or on the court or their legacy that they provide to sports. But I think that there's something, and it's something that the Jared Porter thing really 
really shone a light on in my house in particular because my husband was friends with him. And that is just because someone is good to you and is something very positive in your life doesn't mean he's not an absolute nightmare for someone else. And those two things can be true at the same time. It brings us back to our conversation before the idea that people create an an image for someone and then they can't be moved off of that, whether that's you're too hot to be credible or you're too nice to be evil or any of those that you're too good at football to be a bad person, even though those things are not connected in any way, people want to simplify and, and turn people into monoliths. I'm one of the things that you mentioned was the idea of feeling like other women journalists were mad at you for misrepresenting yourself as the same as them or something like that. One of the problems with that and one of the reasons that happens is because while there are still a fewer number of women in the industry, people will try to group them together, right? And we've all heard this. Oh, you're setting women back decades when you make a mistake. Oh, really? I represent every woman in the business, which never happens to men, right? The idea that there are male sports writers who are slovenly, and slobby and are unkempt. And then there are ones that are sharp and well-dressed and take care of themselves. And then there are ones that are old and there are ones that are young and they're every part of the rainbow. You will find every kind of man in this business and none of them are expected to represent the other ones. But in the case of women in this business, either you're letting everybody else down or you're affecting their ability to work. And I have had interactions with older female journalists when I was in my 20s that was the same as what you're talking about. Well, I would never dress like you would. I don't know how I'm dressing. I'm a 20, I'm a 20 year old. I don't have skin showing. This is just what my body's built like. So when I show up somewhere, it's going to look this way, right? I mean, I literally had people at teams in rooms that they didn't know I knew someone in say her boobs are distracting. And thankfully there was a woman in there to say what she's supposed to do, hang them up outside the locker room and then grab them on her way out. Like that's just a woman's body. Use them as shoulder pads, Sarah, didn't you know? (laughs) The older I get, the easier it's going to be to throw them over the shoulders. But um, (laughs) no, but it's, it's true. And it's such an unfair thing too, to not be able to say, you want to be a, a an entertainer or a host or a analyst or a writer or a there's so many jobs and instead it's grouping them all together to say that someone like you who wants to do what you want to do is somehow a reflection on someone who wants to be a features reporter for the Washington Post or an E60 report like and that's that attitude that you get is not only bullshit from women but it's also built of the idea that they know how tenuous the industry already is for women and how easy it is to try to use any one of us to try to take down all of us. But whenever people ask me what I wanted to do in sports or even what I want to do now, it, the answer is always the same. And that's just, I want to tell stories. I want to tell stories that affect people. I want to tell stories that matter. And I think that's what I'm still doing. You know, I'm telling stories about people that matter for people that can't say it for themselves. And unfortunately, you know, advocacy work, especially in this space, in this day and age feels kind of thankless until I receive letters from women that say, thank you for saying what I can't. Because 
we're delusional if we don't think that this happens in so many different fields, not just sports. You know, you and I are just, we are just privy to it happening in the sports world. But yeah, getting those letters just makes me kind of realize that the work I'm doing is important. And while it's incredibly thankless, um, and it definitely doesn't necessarily help me in a professional way, I hope that I'm making it so that women don't have to deal with this in the future. I'm hope that I am, I am providing some kind of, of voice and some kind of guidance because look, I, I want to change the sports world. I truly do. I want to make it so that the onus isn't on the victim to prove they didn't do anything wrong, you know? And that's something that I, I feel like we still aren't there yet. Um, there's not enough people that are there to advocate for the victim, to walk them through whatever it is they're going through. Um, there's no rules set in place other than from what I understand, like a meeting when you first become a professional athlete where it's like, Hey, don't do anything dumb to women. And it's just like, no, it, it shouldn't be just this thing that happens one time, you know, in baseball during spring training as a rookie. Like this needs to be something from day one. And honestly, I think it, it also is on the teams to make sure that they're employing people that respect women. Mm-hmm. You well, know, that's one it, thing it, it's, it's a bigger, it's a bigger issue. To your point about Jared Porter and Jed Hoyer of the Cubs just recently came out and said, one of the things we need to do is the same way we look at a prospect and go through all sorts of ways to figure out who they are and what kind of player they'll be. We need to do that with employees. We need to talk to more women, not just people who know them, not just people who like them, but people who have been around them. Because you're right, someone like Porter could be great with your husband and be an easygoing, nice guy. And some other people in his life might tell very different stories about it. But we also need to look at like, even with the players, we need to look at players and look and see what is their character like? What kind of guy are they going to be when they are not in our clubhouse? When they are not in our locker room, who are they? Are they they the type of person that's going to be a, are they the type of person that's going to be a liability? Because I think right now what teams like to do is they like to look at what a player is going to contribute to a team versus any kind of problems they may cause publicly for the team. And I just feel like at some point character needs to matter. Like your ability to throw the ball well should not mean that I get to get treated terribly because of it, because you're more important than I am. I just think the problem is, is that you're right. It's a value proposition and it's, the accountability now is not grave enough for them to care. If someone can make the millions of dollars and be successful and the answer when something goes wrong is minimal damage that's easily swept under the rug. Look at the Super Bowl, Frank Clark, Tyreek Hill, Antonio Brown, right? You know how hard it is as a Tampa Bay fan? I know, I know. To to rejoice at all in the fact that my team won the Super Bowl when I, I look at that and I go, yeah, but you had to go and get Antonio Brown. Like that team wasn't already stacked with didn't talent. We didn't need him. Yeah. We didn't yeah. even need him, but you had to go out. And it's like, why bring that equation into your locker room? And it's like, oh, well, Tom Brady vouched for him. I'm like, that's great. Another man vouched for a man. Congratulations. Let's interview some women about it and see how they feel. Because as a female fan who's blocked by Antonio Brown on Twitter for calling out this, I have a huge issue. Right. Well, that's a constant demand of women 
in the industry to suspend disbelief, to reject reality, and to continue supporting leagues and teams and players that don't give a shit about them. And the accountability needs to be much greater for there to be meaningful and lasting change, whether that's the punishment for people who do wrong, whether that's the vetting process for hiring, whether that's hitting them in the pocketbook via sponsors when they don't do right by groups. Um, Yeah, it's a it's a. And the problem is you just keep writing stories and doing interviews about it over and over again. And the power dynamic results in women perhaps achieving a certain level of power or agency to the point where they're no longer a desirable target. I've, I've come to find myself, I'm no longer saying it's getting better. It's getting better for me because I think people would worry about trying to pull this shit on me now. It's not getting better for women starting out because that's exactly who you target. The ones that have no agency, no power, no voice, the disposable ones that the company is going to side with the successful anchor or front office employee or president or manager or player over. Um, That's not to say that there aren't successful, powerful women that are still having this happen to them. But I do think that it's almost like a gauntlet that every woman in this industry has to get through when she starts out because there's there's not a woman I know that doesn't have a story. No. And when it comes down to it, though, Sarah, it's like when you look at who all these leagues have partnerships with, it's like how is a victim ever supposed to get honest coverage anyway about their side? Right. Or if it's someone within the media, then how is that company going to to handle and treat it? Right. I always said it this way. How was I ever supposed to cover the sports news when I was the sports news? It got to a point during 2010 where I, just to be able to watch sports, had to cover the bottom ticker because I got tired of seeing my name and his name with tape so that I could I couldn't see it because I'd be watching I'd be watching a basketball game or watching a football game and I was just ready to tear my hair out mm. because I was the news. And it's like, how could I go and sit around a table with my colleagues at work and not talk about it, by the way, which was not my choice. I was told not to talk about it on on my show. But how was I ever supposed to go to work and be treated as anything but a suspect because I wouldn't address it? Right. Well, all I ever wanted to do was to go to work. I just wanted to go to work. I wanted to be able to tell stories about people. I like, that's the part about sports I've always been drawn to. I don't care about the numbers. I don't care about like, that's great if analytics is like your thing. I've never been a hard numbers girl. I care about why do I care about this game if I don't care about either of these teams? Like what is the driving story? Yes. What is the story? Who do I care about? What's going to make me as a casual viewer care about this game of two teams that I don't have vested interest in. That's the kind of story that I like to tell about sports. Well, I appreciate that you're out here helping other people by being willing to talk about it. I know it's hard to regurgitate that time and the resulting yeah, it, it can had be on you and your career. Publicly splitting my wrist from time to time, you know, for for to help other people, you know, and it's just like, how much do people need to see me bleed before they believe me? Yeah, well, I hope the fact that you're getting a lot of the facts out now that hopefully people already knew, but if they didn't, um, they're getting a more honest representation than what we were sold uh, back then. And I hope that people's changing views on this stuff because of education and because of putting 
the tough part out in the open um, means that people are treating you better and that they're somewhat making up for, for, you know, the ways that we did you wrong. Um, and I One really day appreciate at a time. You. One day at a time. You know? One day at a time. Um, um, but I, I appreciate you reaching out to me and being willing to have these hard conversations because like I said to you on the phone when we when we first reconnected, it's 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 hard seeing people that you respect not respect you back. Um, because of they don't have all the facts. And and I hope the more that I continue to speak, and granted, I hate talking about it, and I hate that this defines my life as in a sense in a public forum. But I feel like until I have all the facts out there for people to like really make a, a good judgment on it and to make an honest judgment about it. Like I'm not going to be satisfied. Right. Right. Well, I hope this helps in some way for people to better understand you and know you. And I hope that you get to tell the stories and get to move beyond this because it is unfair for your life to be defined by something that somebody else did to you. That's not fair. And I hope that you can find a way to make good on it beyond helping other people, but also um, in your own career because you got the goods and I'm a fan. Thanks, Sarah. That's what she said. Oh yeah, one more thing. This is where I rant about stuff, rave about stuff, tell you what to read, what to listen to, what to watch, whatever's on my mind. And this week, it's another edition of my Pride Month series asking LGBTQIA folks what pride means to them. Christina Carl, who's been a guest on this podcast before, shares her perspective as a trans female, baseball lifer, co-founder of Baseball Prospectus, member of the Baseball Writers of America, longtime ESPNer, now the sports editor of the San Francisco Chronicle, who really broke down barriers by transitioning in the middle of his successful career as a sports reporter, walking back into those same press boxes she used to work in now as Christina and showing her colleagues and players and managers and the world how to live authentically and with pride. Here's Christina. What does pride mean to me? It means being authentic and open. It means holding my wife's hand and walking down the street and looking every person who gives us a dirty look right in the eye and letting them know that today and every day I am me, we are here, and we are not going away. So one last thing, as I mentioned earlier, um, I did write a piece uh, discussing both Jen, but really the larger issue of harassment of women in sports media. You can find it on ESPN.com, and I will also obviously link to it on my social, at Sarah Spain, Spain2323 on Instagram, etc. We need to have some tough conversations about the state of our industry and the gauntlet that every woman has to go through in order to do this job. So I appreciate you reading and checking it out and sharing it. You can always tweet me, at Sarah Spain, if you've got guest suggestions, questions, you know, dilemmas you want me to solve. And you should always go to the iTunes or podcast app. Subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Rate five stars, please, and give me a review. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. 